Hi, I am Jada Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair here on WORT. And I have a request. Madison Magazine is running their annual Best of Madison competition. And I need you to go nominate A Public Affair as the best podcast Madison has to offer. All you have to do is go to tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Nominations are open all throughout this month, and you can nominate us every single day. Now, the actual voting doesn't take place till June, but if we're not nominated, we can't be voted on. So go nominate us. Again, that's tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Thanks so much, and I'm so excited for everyone to know that A Public Affair is the best podcast in Madison. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Good afternoon. Madison, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow, and this is a public affair. Today is Valentine's Day, so happy Tuesday. Happy Valentine's Day. And we are joined by two good friends of mine, um, or folks who I know from really different aspects of my life, but love very, very much, uh, Toby Campbell and Angela Russell. Angela Russell is the host of the podcast Black Oxygen. And Angela, I wanted to have this conversation with you because the conversations I've had with you in the context of Black Oxygen are so intentional and so healing. And it feels like such a gift to get to share them with the greater community and the folks who listen to that podcast. If you have not tuned in for Black Oxygen, you know, get your life together. It's a it's a great, great podcast. Angela, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for joining this conversation. And can you talk a little bit about what compassionate conversations or healing conversations mean to you? Ali, thank you so much for having me on this show. And yeah, I'm just honored because honestly, when you told me the topic, I'm like, yo, you know, I'm a work in progress on this. So Um, When I was thinking about compassionate conversations, my mind goes a lot of different places. Um, Number one is how I need to be better at it. (laughs) That's where it goes to first. But also the notion of compassion and connectedness when they're suffering. So when I think of the word compassion, I think about that shared space around suffering and the intentionality that is necessary in order to have a compassionate conversation. Um, And for me to have a compassionate conversation, I have to be fully, fully present. I think that when you talk about black oxygen, I have to get ready for myself every, every time I do a recording. And even if I'm feeling harried or rushed or whatever, I have to take a few moments to center myself so I can be actively present. Um, I think that compassionate conversations isn't about being nice or being passive. There is an, there is a presence that is very active, even when there is silence or pause. So that's what comes to mind initially. Mm, Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And I think, you know, the more reflective part of a compassionate conversation, what it really means to you to be a participant in the conversation um, is part of the reason I thought 
you would be great to have this conversation with. Toby Campbell, you have a very different job and world than than Angela Russell. Um, you are an, an oncologist and you know, having conversations with patients on a regular basis about the realities of, of their health and, and sometimes conversations that are hard and scary. And I think a lot of times we want um, compassion to mean that a conversation is is softer or less direct or less clear. And I think one of the interesting things about you and this conversation is that's not really an option for you in your line of work. People have to understand um, what you're telling them. Talk to me a little bit about how you use compassion to inform the way you connect with with patients who have cancer. Well, first, Ali, thank you for welcoming me to the show. It's a, such a privilege to join you and Angela for this conversation. I've really been looking forward to it. I do have intense, scary, life-altering conversations with people every day. I really liked the frame that you gave me for this, which is three words, the art of compassionate conversations. I think there is an art to conducting conversations well. I think compassionate conversations, just as Angela said, are about the relief of suffering, are about bringing healing, bringing a therapeutic presence to the conversation. I think of compassion and empathy as two really important concepts that are distinct and different. If I'm in an empathetic conversation, I am present, fully listening, engaged, sort of demonstrating that skill that is two people interacting with one another, but I'm not necessarily trying to relieve pain or distress or suffering. And I think that's the compassion concept. And so when I'm an oncologist, sometimes I'm doing empathetic conversation, sometimes I'm doing compassionate conversation, but I think the idea of a compassionate conversation is a really important one. And then I'll key in on that last word, conversation. This isn't you know, just a diatribe, right? I'm not just talking at someone as, you know, frankly, doctors sometimes do, but we're engaged in a conversation and, and that back and forth is intrinsic to the healing component of the conversation because we've got to have a back and forth. I think like I I was recently in in the hospital with my father. I actually did the show, um, so I did a, a public affair on WORT eighty nine point nine FM for a couple Tuesdays from my dad's hospital room because he is enough of a fan of this show to let me hang out with him um, after his surgery and do it live from his room. Um, and because Ben and Jade are the best, like our engineer, our producer, our news director at WORT are incredibly supportive, accommodating people. Um, but I, I, it was interesting how impacted my dad was, not just by like, the the actual physical reality of his of his illness but by the way people talked and interacted with him um and i i think you know there are these moments in our lives you know i think about this for myself when you know i i have three kids and the way people interacted with me while i was in labor are things i'm never going to forget if you are out there and you're thinking about the really hard conversations you've had to have the moments where the things people said to you mattered intensely we would love to hear from you happy valentine's day to participate in the conversation all you have to do is dial 608 256 
888-2001 and then press nine and Jade will patch you through to join the show. So shout out to our engineer, Jade, who is a newlywed um, celebrating Valentine's Day. And we're here for that. Like somebody's plot's getting thickened tonight and we are about that life. Um, Angela, I want to I want to jump back to you because, you know, I, I knew that for me, a conversation about compassion would be a racialized conversation, right? Like, who do we um, care about in our society? Who are we gentle towards? Who are we considerate of? Who are we more patient with? Um, Black Oxygen is a very intentionally Black show. You interview exclusively people who identify as Black. Why is having healing and restorative and vulnerable and, you know, deeply brave and loving conversations with other Black people, something that you wanted to focus on um, and and make a series of podcasts about? Well, I mean, I think I've told you the story before, Ali. Um, prior to the pandemic, I used to travel a fair amount for work. And I was in California right um, in the night before when you kind of go out and give speech, speeches and talks for work, you kind of do the whining and dining thing the night before. I went out to dinner with a colleague the night before. You know, he's a black guy from Inglewood, California. And we'd always joke about how he was far more buttoned up than I am. And he's like, and I'm from Inglewood and you're from Wisconsin and you're all like all power to the people all of the time. And I'm like, yeah, that's interesting. And it's true. And he's like, I think you need more black oxygen in your life. So I just kind of journaled about what that meant. And he meant like more voices of black folks consistently in my life. Um, and it's not that I didn't have a black community before black oxygen. I did. Um, and I, I mean, I am black and my family's black as well, but there was something different that I wanted to try out. Um, the other thing that I, I really wanted to do is that there's this really weird narrative that the, that there aren't many black folks in Wisconsin and there are, I mean, statistically, they're not as many as white. That's true. But we're here. And I wanted to hear those voices and amplify those voices. And I think the thing that's been most surprising for me is that I hear that the community loves it and all of that, which I'm very deeply grateful for. I didn't know I needed it as much as I did. So there are times where I take a break because I need to tend to my family or I just need to take a break to regroup. There are times where I think about, hmm, is it time for me to sunset this? Because I was going to only do six episodes where several, I mean, we're hundreds of episodes, I mean, hundred episodes in now. But every time I think about it and then I have another conversation, I'm like, oh, I didn't know that I needed that oxygen just as much as other folks did. Um, it gives, it's become kind of a ritual for me where the ritual is twofold. I'm recording with someone and I have to slow down to be actively present in that conversation. And then the other part of the ritual is re-listening to it again before it um, is dropped as an episode. So yeah, I don't, I don't really remember what your initial question was, honestly. <laughs> I've rambled a bit, but it's given me an opportunity to practice conversation in a way that I didn't know was necessary. And I've kind of it's been really helpful. And not only that, my kids hear it and they hear the model of those conversations, which is also really important to me as well. 
I feel like one of the reasons I was really interested in doing this show on Valentine's Day is because I think oftentimes the the emphasis on Valentine's Day is romantic connection. Mm -hmm. um, and I think like there are so many ways to love people. There are so many ways to be there for people. And the the ability to talk about platonic love or the ability to talk about how we treat the people we work with, we engage with, we interact with, um, we don't often get to have that conversation. I guess, Toby, I want to ask you specifically, you know, what does it mean to you to have patients who, you know, not only feel like you've saved their lives, but feel like you have been kind and generous and willing to explain to them? What, is, what does it feel like for you to show up in that way? And I guess part of the reason I ask that question is, I think a lot of times we think that treating each other well takes more energy. You know, we're short with each other because we don't have the energy or the patience or the time. Um, how do you, you know, see yourself as kind of this abundant resource that has the time and the space to really show up for patients in a way that a lot of doctors struggle with? What a lovely question. I value the relationships that I'm forming. So I think it starts from there. I think all doctors do, but for me, it's core to my identity and core to my practice. I would be curious what you and Angela would say about being fully present. Angela mentioned being fully present earlier. And I think that this is a place where I show up fully. When I chose to go into cancer medicine and palliative care, it was a very deliberate choice. I looked at the different options you have. You have a lot of options in medicine, right? You could be a brain surgeon or you could be a pediatrician or you know, if those are the anchors and anything in between. And so I chose cancer medicine. I chose that because I wanted something that was slower I wanted to be able to spend time with people and for that to be a piece, a core component of my career, because there are certainly different aspects of medicine, right? Where you don't spend a lot of time with people. You need to make quick, rapid decisions and do things. Um, you know, we have a mantra within palliative care rather than where people typically say, don't just sit there, do something. We mm -hmm. sometimes say, don't just do something, sit there, <laughs> you know, which is to say, really be present and listen and connect and use all those resources to, to bring about a therapeutic, compassionate relationship. I um, have the experience of having innumerable patients after I've told them something terrible, because most of the time when I'm meeting people, that's because something terrible health-wise has happened to them. And I'm in a position of having to communicate this news, help them understand it so that we can together come, come to a place of developing a plan. And it's routine for people to thank me after doing this terrible, after saying these terrible things. And I always find that really interesting. And I think what they're thanking me for is, of course, not the news and maybe not even the plan, but the fact that we did it together, that we came together in some way and we emerged feeling like we are, uh, you know, some kind of team battling this common enemy. And I think that's what the thanks are about. Um, I don't ask people why they're thanking me because that's kind of awkward, but I just sort of imagine. But yeah, I think to your point, um, this, the job that I have is a hard job. And you do have to find ways of having it bring value back to yourself so that, you know, I've been doing this for almost 20 years now. You have to find some way of sustaining yourself so you can keep doing this job. And for me, 
forming relationships is that core that sustains me. Oh, I love so much that you talked about relationships. And I also really appreciate that. I think you've both kind of talked about one of the, the, you know, techniques within this art form of compassionate conversation is to pause, um, is to is to have some sense of spaciousness and and some sense of intentionality and thoughtfulness, um, which I think, you know, we need we need a little bit more of. Um, it's something I think about a lot of times in terms of parenting. And I wanted to talk to you both uh, about parenting because I, I think like that kind of love is one of the in my in my experiences is one of the most profound and life altering kinds of love you can experience and i think most of us so desperately want to say the right thing and do the right thing with our kids and then you know like we are all kind of it's a humbling experience to realize how often that is not what's happening right how often you are not just showing up as your best self first thing in the morning when somebody's like demanding cereal um so you know here on wort 89.9 fm during a public affair today, I am asking you all to be your authentic selves within the realm of your work, but also in who you are in life. And so I want to ask, like, how does how does this show up for you, Angela, as a parent in, in speaking to your children with compassion, in modeling it for them? Um, what is what does that look like for you? And, you know, I guess. Are there kind of, you know, peaks and valleys of, of this effort? And, you know, how do you normalize that? Um, yes, I will start off with saying, yes, there are peaks and valleys, because of course, and that's kind of where some of the connection and communication and the problem solving can happen is when, when you're going through those peaks and valleys. For me, it's also um, knowing when I'm able to have a compassionate conversation and when I'm not, what are the conditions that enable me to be a better parent? Um, my kids know that I can't do a lot of sugar because I will get cranky within like 30 to 45 minutes. I have to exercise and if I don't, it shows. Um, so really making sure that I'm creating those conditions. And um, this sounds so cliche. It's gonna sound super cliche, but having conversations at the dinner table around a meal where we kind of hear what's going well, what's not going well. Um, my kids uh, telling me when they don't think that I'm being particularly kind and suggest that I may need some alone time and being open to that. Hey, mom, do you need a little bit of alone time? Yes. Yes, I do. What, what gave it away? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And just being open and honest about I our like, needs. I like the idea of your kids like compassionately putting you on a timeout, being like, okay, so maybe somebody needs to just like hang out in their room a little bit. Um, <laughs> they're, not, they're not bringing living room energy to this living room right now. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, my kids provide me so much feedback on a regular basis. And I think the thing that I need to work on as a parent uh, is like, some of their framing and feedback that works here may not work in other settings. For example, my son the other day, I thought I was looking really cute. He's like, oh my God, mom, you look like you're trying to cosplay a grandma. And I'm like, Are, wait, what? Do I look that bad? He's like, it's terrible. So but here's I, the thing, like, like that's 
to beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Like crossplay a grandma is actually like part of my fashion beliefs. <laughs> you know? like, like, I'm, well, maybe you just haven't understood like the the comfort of whether appropriate attire at this yeah. point in your life, but I'm for those outfits. I want to welcome a caller to WORT 89.9 FM. Thank you for joining us on A Public Affair, Diane. Um, thank you for being part of this conversation with Toby Campbell and Angela Russell. What do you want to talk about? What's your question? Well, first I want to give a, a beautiful, happy Valentine's to, to all three of you and to everyone else. I want to share a historical fact about Valentine's Day. And given the fact that you folks are talking about compassion, this day that we associate with romantic love began in the early days of Christianity when a man used to visit prisoners and provide them with what he could. His name was Valentine. And his work carried such weight in the church that he became a saint. So here we have someone who is truly compassionate. And oh. here we have transferred it to a romantic holiday. I do, do not expect you to that? reframe uh, Valentine's Day as a prison abolitionist holiday, but Diane, you are you have one all-time favorite caller. Happy Valentine's Day to you. Toby, I want to let you respond to Diane. What, how, do you, how does that make you feel to kind of talk about the original origins of, of this holiday um, and have it linked to prison abolitionists and, and compassion? It, it just makes plain to me how learning from our history is so important and how it's easy to get lost in modern conceptualizations of of holidays or any kind of tradition that we have. And it's also possible to reframe things, to ask ourselves, you know, what really matters. I think many people, I don't celebrate Valentine's, my wife and I don't celebrate Valentine's as a romantic holiday in any meaningful or significant way or, or at all. But we, you know, I think of the way that Diane framed this as, as really important, you know, being compassionate with one another, being um, thoughtful to one another, particularly those who find themselves in a position that's worse than your own, right? I think presumably no one would doubt that someone who's incarcerated is in a worse position um, th than ourselves. Um, and that just seems like I was reflecting on what you were saying earlier and what Angela was saying about families. And I think one of the things that I know you both do is you, you intentionally create space for a conversation you know, whether that be with your kids or someone else. But on Valentine's Day, I think just remembering what Diane is proposing here, which is you have to intentionally create this space, whether that is going to visit a prisoner or whether that's doing that at the, whether that's having dinner with without phones so that we're intentionally creating space for us to communicate uh, with one another. I, I like to walk. And so I've, I've noticed that, you know, whether it's with a work colleague or with my kids, it works especially well with my kids. If we're both facing the same direction, I think we have better conversations. I wonder if there's something about just sort of the intensity of eye contact with when there's sort of a power dynamic, like with my kids, for example, um, where more, I just get more from them when 
you know, because it, it, it happens when we're on a walk. It happens when we're in the car, too. And I don't know. I'd be curious if you guys see that, too. But it happens for me. Well, as, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, now is my 13 year old just started riding up front um, in the car. And I'm like, oh, yeah, there is this transition of, you know, being in in parallel with one another um, and and what that does for a conversation. Although going back to, to what our caller brought into this conversation and thank you again, Diane, shout out to you. Um, I think like there are there's these moments where compassion is not expected right when you're in prison i think you get used to people um you get used to your own eraser you get used to being invisible right i think when you're in a hospital it's amazing how many people can come into contact with you and never learn anything about you never know anything about what your life is like when you are not um hospitalized when you're not under anesthesia you know I, I I guess I I wonder, you know, and I love that you talked about valuing relationships. I think relationships are really complicated for most of us, like whether it is our friendships or our relationships with our family. I think a lot of us strive for good relationships and no relationship can be good all the time. Right. And so in those moments, this is one of the reasons I, I wanted to talk to you both about this is because you're people that I've enjoyed talking to about the hard conversations I have to have, the conversations that feel challenging or the conversations where I feel like I'm going in with my guard up. Um, what do you, what is your strategy, Angela, when you're going to have a conversation that, you know, is about accountability or is about like, you know, your, your expectations or your boundaries? What, what do those conversations look like for you? Yeah. Um, I'm thinking, one of I, I'm I'm struck with your phrase of striving for good relationships, and I don't know if we strive for good relationships or we if we strive for perfection in relationships, and if we're striving for perfection, that's when it gets kind of twisted sometimes. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of boundaries and com- communication and accountability, one of the things that's coming up for me is so I have a a podcast called black oxygen that's one one set of what i do but the thing that actually is my day job is doing dei work um diversity equity and inclusion work and when you said that compassion is not expected it's also often not expected in those spaces either because so many of those spaces are shame and blame which is not about coming from to quote martin luther king jr a strength of a, a place of love of deep love for each other or a shared humanity of creating the beloved community. It's about minimizing each other through really harsh rhetoric. I see that way too much and that's not going to propel us forward in what we need. So again, compassionate conversation in the space of DEI isn't about being nice. It's not about placating, but it's about creating a shared space of understanding so we can move, figure out ways to move forward together. And that's hard to do sometimes. Oh, that's so well said. If you're joining us, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. And I'm talking to the beloved Angela Russell and Toby Campbell. Um, we have another caller, so people cannot get enough of the two of you. Peter, how are you doing today? Uh, we're, we're so I'm great doing great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I just, I'm a leadership consultant been practicing leadership for 40 years. I also have uh, 
been elected in multiple capacities in my community, uh, in leadership roles in our community as an elected official. I wanted to highlight uh, the insight that Toby made that when you are striving to create that space of problem solving, it is always best to focus together, shoulder to shoulder, outward to the problem. And that problem could be psychological. It does not have to be physical. I'm not exactly sure of the neurophysiology, but I know after 40 years of practice that the dynamic changes amazingly and significantly when human beings focus outward toward an issue as opposed to facing each other over an issue. And I would encourage that with all kinds of discussions, especially with adolescents. Uh, uh, I taught adolescents for many years. I have four children, some of whom are still adolescents. And I find that whenever a situation arises where there can be confrontation, if we turn the physicality away from a face-to-face -face issue to pointing out what could be the issue externally, uh, it creates a dynamic that provides opportunity for the best solutions to arise and also for people to hear the other more significantly than if we were looking at each other. The defensiveness tends to drop, and the interest in what the problem is comes much more significantly forward. Oh, Peter, thank you so much for, one, emphasizing the conversation we're having and, and really building on, on Toby's point, but also for, for joining in this conversation today on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. I'm talking to Angela Russell and Toby Campbell. Toby, I wanted to ask you a question similar to the question I asked Angela, although shaped shaped different, differently, because I think when you're a doctor, you are working intimately like you are you are connecting with people's lives and and you know you're seeing people um go through something that's that's profound and altering and and reconcile things that are deeply challenging and i imagine that there is a lot of people who have a sense of really deep connection with you or a sense of you know real gratitude towards you what does it look like to really distinguish between your patients and your friends? Um, what does it look like to really distinguish, you know, where where this relationship ends? How how do you um, not take your work home when when you're really grappling with you know a, another person's life on a regular basis? Well, I'm going to echo Angela from earlier when I opened by saying I'm a work in progress. <laughs> at not bringing things home. I, I suspect if you talked to my family that you might get a different slant on the answer to this question. And I've been at this since 2001 and I've developed skills and strategies that I didn't have at the beginning that I'm better at now than I was before. I'll give you a metaphor, which is what I talk to my trainees about. Um, I fully believe that 
the patients that I'm working with and their families that I'm working with are are in a state of stress, uh, fear, worry, some some kind of suffering. Let's sort of synthesize all of that and say that they're in a state of panic and they're in some ways suffering. And I don't subscribe to the idea that I should shelter myself from that or shield myself in some way. I think of this as a pool. It's their pool. It's a lot of emotion. It's a lot of feelings, it's a lot of strong feelings. There's a lot going on. And I firmly believe that we should dive into the pool and be in there and swim amongst my patient and their family. And then the metaphor for me is that I get to get out of the pool and towel off and put my clothes on and go home and recognize what's mine and what's theirs. And I get to leave behind because it's not my, it's not my pool. And then I get to go home and, you know, as, as is said in a famous poet, a poem, uh, take off my jacket and change the light bulb in the hallway. You know, so um, the point is that I get to do, take that off and then do normal things. And, and that sort of metaphor helps me keep track of what's mine and what's someone else's. But then I can also own when I get sad myself in an encounter, I can usually figure out why I'm, you know, I'm feeling this. Is it because I just really like this person? Is it because I'm channeling some other aspect of my life? Um, is it, you know, I can usually try to figure out what's going on for me, but that's how I think about these relationships. And, and they are different than friend and family relationships. Um, and maybe that's how I, how I think about them. I so appreciate that you've named that you've gotten better at this over time. Um, as, as somebody who's worked with students for the majority of my adult life, I, I remember early on really struggling with like where my day would end, when I wasn't going to be available to young people, how I, I was going to, you know, map out the space for myself when there was so many people who had so much that they needed from, from somebody and should that somebody always be me. Um, and I think it's a thing, especially folks who work in areas of, of deep connection with other people where people learn to rely on you um, and feel cared about and safe with you. Um, you. You take on great meaning in people's lives. And I think when you're encounter encountering people, whether it's because they're sick or whether it's because you've invited them to you know, have a, a conversation with you that you're gonna broadcast to thousands of people, Angela, like you are, are holding that person in a space of, of you know, they, they have to be able to be safe with you. They have to know that, that they can be who they actually are and talk about you know, things that are meaningful to them and that you're gonna want to understand. Um, Angela, I think, where where is the role of like understanding where folks are coming from because you one of the things i really love about black oxygen is that you've had these like themes as you've had conversations and so you have what folks could consider to be kind of the same conversation with a lot of different people and you do this really beautiful thing of honoring all of these different perspectives, right? You don't go, oh, this is the person who got, you know, grief right. This is the expert. This is the, you know, star of this season. You really go, here's a thousand different ways that people are coping or dealing or thinking about something. And I know that there is room for all of them. How do you do that? Um, when did it occur to you that you wanted to approach Black Oxygen 
through that that style of of or that that genre of kind of theming seasons and recreating conversations with dis- different perspectives and honoring those different perspectives. Oh, the honest answer is when I first started it, I was too tired to recreate questions every time. <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, <laughs> but then it seemed to work. Um, and so generally for each season, I have a stand, a standard set of questions that I send out to people ahead of time. And then I riff, you know, um, I, one of the fun parts of black oxygen for me is to see what's going to come up. I never know what's going to happen. And that's part of the exciting thing for me. I, in preparing for this conversation, I, I sat down twice to prepare for it one last week and one earlier today. And one of my notes from last week is, I don't know why I put this, but it's here under my notes for this conversation is allowing yourself to be mystified. And I don't know why I thought that was important to be to compassionate communication. I don't know why that note is there, but that's how I approach black oxygen. Um, it, it wouldn't occur to me not to have the same questions every time because in that framing, my assumption would be that everyone would have the same answer. And that's that just doesn't sound interesting at all. Um, the other thing that I wanna talk about in terms of creating that container, one thing that I have shifted for Black Oxygen is now before re- re- we start recording, I asked um, the guests a couple of things. What do you need in order for this to be a good conversation for you? And And then I offer the framing of why. And the why is because so much across our country, um, we can be exploited as Black folks, exploited for our talents, gifts, thoughts, wisdom, creativity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't want this to be a a place of exploitation of a conversation. I want it to be a place of safety, beauty, and sacredness that can be amplified. And I've gotten a lot more intentional about that over time. Mm. Ali, we would call that a semi-structured interview in the research world, right? You've got a set of questions, but it just demonstrates, Angela, that you're listening, right? Because every interview evolves differently, even though they start from a similar foundation. And that just talks to your skills as an interviewer, really. Toby, I want to ask you, like, it would seem kind of like you have the same conversation with people over and over again, too. And I imagine that you know, people relate to this as like what it looks like in a movie scene, right? When it's a a 30 second clip of a doctor revealing to somebody that they should get a a lump looked at more carefully um, or that something needs to be biopsied. A few kind of words and exchanges and then a person, you know, leaves the hospital with like sad music following them home, right? what are those conversations really like? Do people surprise you with how they respond beyond thanking you for, for being a partner and combating their illness? Um, how, how do people respond to these conversations? And are there things, approaches you take specifically um, to, to manage the, the, the reaction people have to the kind of news you deliver? That's a great question. Yes, I mean, they... The conversations are similar in that the structure is similar. So I'm walking in the room and I need to meet them and you know talk about something important. 
um, I have some pieces of information that I really need from them, such as like, who are you? What do you care about? What's important to you? Um, I need to gather information about their values. Who are they as a who are they as a person? And then I also have some nuts and bolts. I need to communicate what's wrong with you and what your treatment options are and what are the risks and benefits of those treatment options? What's your life going to look like if you go on chemotherapy or radiation therapy? So there are component structures that show up in each of these and I have developed kind of my way. I think most people, most doctors have the way that they navigate that. But for me, it's, it's the conversation is baked into the design of how I conduct these interviews because I know I'm gonna ask my patient I oftentimes do say, like, it really helps me to get to know you a little bit. Who, who are you? I sometimes leave it that vague. It depends, you know, like you sometimes you have to modify it. But there's a lot of people who they'll take that question and roll with it. Right. And I and I get some really valuable information. So and I'll ask that question pretty early on. So the conversations arc differently because they're they're unique individuals. And we then get to talk about the way that this fits into their life or doesn't fit into their life, but we're going to have to make it fit because it's, it's inserted itself. It's amazing to me to, to think about the way you have to prioritize the feelings of the other person um, in that space as a care provider, even if you are having an emotional reaction. I, I read a story to a group of kids. The, the story was mostly pictures, okay? There's like 45 words in this book, y'all. And there's one page that's just a picture of a grandson getting a necklace from his grandmother. And I'm reading this book to kids for Read Your Heart Out Week. Shout out to Lowell Elementary School. Um, and I started crying. I started crying looking at this picture of this grandma handing this little kid a, a necklace. I, I am curious, Toby, how you, you know, show up in that moment with your patient and are present and are avail available, but also how you prioritize their feelings over your own, no matter how hard your day is, no matter how sad you are to watch this person go through what they're about to go through. Um, how do you, how do you focus on, you know, being a professional in that moment, being compassionate, but also doing the job? Um, this might sound a little bit clinical. I hope, I hope it's okay. Ali, I think that the emotional reactions that people have to what I'm telling them are crucial and um, fundamental components of the conversation. So, you know, if I haven't heard from you how this feels, what I'm telling you, I'm going to ask you, if you start to volunteer that this is making you sad or mad or frustrated or you know, I'm going to let that keep going. I'm going to stimulate it. Tell me more about that. So embedded within my conversation is the desire to know how this makes you feel. And I am thinking of that as a clinician. I, this is the compassionate communication, right? I know based on my experience and training that my patients and I talking about that is not just nice, but necessary. Mm. Um, we've got to do that because this feels terrible and that's got to come out and their family needs to hear that. And we collectively will be in a better place when we've had the opportunity to, to, get, that, to get that out. I think of strong emotions 
um, when I when I teach about this, I use sort of a crass metaphor, but I say strong emotions are like pus under pressure, like a really painful zit. And you just can't think about anything else. And you've got to have relief. And as the doctor, I've got to make space for that to happen. And we've got to just let it keep coming until it starts to come down a little bit. And in the room, you can actually feel the emotional intensity go from a 10 to a seven to a three. And that's when I know, okay, that's usually the part in the conversation where I'll, I'll propose like, should we talk about our options? Are you ready to talk about treatment? It, you can actually feel that emotional intensity come down to a point where people are ready now to talk about more stuff. Oh, that's so helpful to hear. And it also reminds me, as an elected official, there's a quote that I tell myself over and over again. I swear to God, like once a day, I tell myself this Leslie Nope quote from Parks and Recreations, where she says, I don't hear people yelling. I hear people caring loudly. Um, I'm like, yeah, people are yelling at me. They just care loudly. Angela, I think one of the misconceptions about Black oxygen and, and conversations amongst Black people is that you're having conversations with people who are like you. Like you are this group of people, this this culture, and therefore the 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 conversation can only be so diverse. People can only you know push the the boundaries of it so far because it's an insider dialogue. Can you talk about the role of diversity in terms of what compassion looks like in these conversations as you show up for people who are super different from one another, who have very different faith backgrounds, very different ideas of beauty and self-esteem and grief, people who come from all over the place and landed in Wisconsin, you know, talk to me about how, how you show up differently for different people. Hmm. I like that question and I like it because I don't fully know the answer. <laughs> um, I think part of it for me is that I'm just really curious I don't come at it as as black folks are a monolith. I don't experience black folks as a monolith. And I'm just really, really interested in what makes different people tick. And it's fascinating. Um, there may be people I disagree with or have a different background than. Um, and that's great, right? That's okay. It's fine. I think the most challenging part of Black Oxygen for me is learning who is ready to have a conversation, right? Mm -hmm. I think that oftentimes in this community, if you're Black, there's an invitation for you to come in and just talk at people as opposed to having a, having a more engaged dialogue. So just figuring out who wants to be in conversation where you don't know where it's going to go. That takes... I think it takes a lot of courage for folks to come on to Black Oxygen, and I'm deeply appreciative of it. And I think that in terms of where does it come from, it just comes from me just being really curious as to what is your Wisconsin story? What brought you here? What keeps you here? And then all the thoughts that go along with each episode. You know, I, I'm like, that makes me feel like I have to be responsible for the fact that like I'm a long winded person um, and always have been like since I was a kid, I was like a little long winded kid. And my dad used to say this thing to me. He would say, do you want to have uh, is this a dialogue or a monologue? Like, just let me know what we're doing. Just let me know if this is your one person show or if I'm supposed to say stuff <laughs> at this point. Um 
I, I think, you know, going back to kind of the, the power dynamic of like with your kids or the power dynamic of hosting a show and inviting somebody kind of into this world, right? Um, how, how do you balance your own voice with the voice of the other person? I do think we are just talking about what it means to have a good conversation, to feel like, yo, I was heard during that conversation and that person, like I heard them too. Toby, what does that look like for you when you know like this person really understood, really got the information I needed to give them. We were both, you know, there as people together. Um, I heard them, they heard me, this, this conversation, uh, was important, mattered, is memorable. How do you, what are the signs of that for you? You know, I, I'm showing up in a conversation as a physician. It, it's, it's a one, it's, it's two-sided, right? But I am sort of the professional and I need to maintain that professional space. So I'm not sharing about, you know, my personal stuff, right? I'm not sharing about my family. They may be sharing about their family. I'm not reached. It's not reciprocal in that way. The way that I'm showing up as a person, though, is in, for example, giving them back reflections. You know, if I'm hearing them say this matters to me, I might if they're, they're saying like, you know, being outside and walking through the woods is important to me. I might give back, you know, it sounds like your independence and being really functional and moving about the world independently is really important to you. And if they identify with that, then they're going to say yes. So I do show up because I'm clearly I'm trying hard to listen and be really mindful about how I'm listening, but it's different than in a conversation that you're having with your friends where I'm, I, in that circumstance, I'd be sharing more personal details, which I don't do in the, in the clinical space. I'm curious um, too about Angela, you know, as a, as a, as a host of a podcast, you know, what, how do you find that balance, Angela? But that's how I think about it in the clinical space. Yeah, Angela. How do you find <laughs> it's hard for me because I really do want to be amplifying voices i want the focus to be on a on the guests themselves but if it's a conversation there has to be that dialogue and i have received some feedback that maybe people want to hear a little bit more from me on my thoughts and reactions to what folks are saying which kind of it kind of baffles me and stuns me i'm like y'all want to hear what i have to say why i'm just here asking questions which is what i'd love to do I mean, I, I think like there is that, that balancing act of, of how you're showing up, how you're reflecting, how you're digesting what people are saying. And mm -hmm. I think so often when I've worked with young people, um, Toby, I think there's so many uh, folks working, particularly with, you know, adolescent folks who would really benefit from like just mirroring what a kid is saying. You'd be amazed at how often kids are like, nobody is listening to me. Um, we have a listener question, not on the line. Is it a good thing for non-Black people to listen to Black Oxygen? All right. I want, I want Toby to answer this and then I'll give my thoughts. Well, yeah, of course it is. I mean, it's a good show. You learn a lot. You, I mean, okay, if, let's, let's talk about empathizing for a moment. If you want to be able to imagine what it's like to walk a mile in someone else's shoes, that's what I really think empathy is. If you want to imagine what it might be like to walk a mile in someone else's shoes, we, one of the ways to do that is to, to read, to watch movies, to listen to stories, to try to understand someone's perspective. And listening to a show like Angela's gives you perspective, someone else's perspective that you can try to see the world 
from the from where they're sitting. Toby, I think that's such a generous way to answer that question. I'm going to say to me, that question is like asking uh, a, a, a black person like, well, does it make sense for someone like you to read Shakespeare? right? Because that's not about my culture, right? It's not about my identity. So is it is it worthwhile for me to explore things that are beyond my own identity? Um, and I would say absolutely, like, absolutely, it is worthwhile to for people who are non-Black, no matter how they identify, to listen to Black Oxygen because it is compelling and gorgeous. Angela, do you want to also hype up why everyone should listen? Yeah, I, I, I love that um, folks want to listen. I think folks should listen. The other thing that I will add is that I'm very aware that it's not just Black folks listening. And even in that awareness, I still want it to be a Black person conversation, Black person to Black person. How do we create this space that is holy and where you can see, feel seen and heard for of for all of who you are, because that doesn't happen on a day-to-day basis. So while I am aware that a whole lot of people can benefit from listening to Black Oxygen, which honestly, that's kind of an honor and even more humbling that that, that's happening. But I do want it to be a space where people can kind of just let their guard down a little bit for an hour once a week when they're in conversation with me. I have to say, I knew I'd, I'd mentioned this at some point during today's show, um, but my, my father is a cancer survivor. He's been sick for the last, you know, uh, few weeks. And I've thought a lot about, like, what his original care met 15 years ago. Um, and the fact that if he had not survived, he would not have met all six of, of his grandchildren. Um, and for that, I am very grateful to, to Toby Campbell. And I also want to say that I think... You know, I know what compassionate conversations can mean in the life of of people. And so my last question to both of you in this last few seconds is, um, what have compassionate conversations done for for your life? What do they mean to you? And why do you hope more people embrace the art form? Well, for me, they make life worth living. Angela? Um, They make me a better person and make me more curious about the journey. Oh, and they make me very glad to get to be with you all here today on WORT 89.9 FM. This is a public affair. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. Happy Tuesday. Happy Valentine's Day. Have fun, y'all. Prisoners if you can't afford to feed none. Don't start no fights if you cannot predict the outcome. Don't make donations where you cannot get your dough back. The apathetic bullshit. Send them all your Prozac.